Hi there, podcast listeners. This is not a regular episode of The Life and Times of Video Games. This is rather an extended interview with Pocket Gamer co-founder John Jordan, who these days writes mostly about the business of mobile games at Pocket Gamer's sister site, pocketgamer.biz. These full interview postings will normally be for Patreon backers only, but since I've only just launched the show, I thought it'd be good to give you a taste of what you'll be getting when you make a monthly pledge of $3 or more. We covered a lot of ground in the interview, far more than I could fit into the Race to the Bottom episode, and John had some great insights into how the business and design of iOS gaming has evolved over time. So without further ado, Here's me talking to John Jordan back in late July. And so as a, a starting point, uh, I kind of wanted to go back and get your thoughts, recollections on mm. uh, what, what happened back when the App Store was originally announced in 2008. Um, what was your reaction and what do you remember of like the, the games industry's reaction? Mm. Yeah, it was, it's, it's kind of funny to to be going back to in what seems like ancient history and, and is now you know getting off of t- 10 years ago um i guess f- from my own point of view it was particularly kind of bookended in the sense that pocket gamer as, as a as a website started um in early 2007 although we've been kicking around the idea from 2006 um so in, in a sense some sort of in some sort of business history, you could look back. Starting a, a website about mobile games, that was the entirely correct time to do it because obviously the App Store was going to come and change everything. And you, then someone like me would have to stand up and say, absolutely 100% wrong. <laughs> you know, We had absolutely no knowledge at all that was going to happen. Um, in fact, when the iPhone came out, I have to say um, we were fairly sketchy about it. Uh, and, and to be fair, you know, even Steve Jobs was was fairly low-key about how many units he thought it would sell and obviously the, the iPhone 2G came out didn't have no app store you know it, it was a a phone at the time with a with a touchscreen and uh, you know, a more mobile computing device but it was certainly like a phone and then the 3G came out and it wasn't really till the 3GS came out that was a, a more um, you know kind of advanced computer rather than just being a phone the, the app store came out and I remember even at the time you know as Pocket Gamer we were you know, our business model at that point was was covering, um, you know, Java games. So Java was the, in Europe, was the technology you had to make games and then download them. In the States, you had Brew, which was kind of Qualcomm's equivalent. You know, and, that, and those were very kind of limited technologies in a sense of how, the, how those, they had app stores, but how those were run was very limited. And they were run by the, the mobile phone operators. So... Vodafone's, T-Mobile's, those kind of people were, were running the content. And the iPhone came out, and we kind of thought, oh, that's kind of cool. Another phone came is coming out. Even at, the, at that time, there were lots of phones coming out. And there's, there's always phones coming out. I guess that's, that's been a, a long-term thing. Um, but we didn't really kind of – it wasn't like we kind of understood there was a, a strategic element to like, oh, Apple's launched this thing. It's a phone. There's a store attached to it. That's going to be a big thing. It's kind of funny to talk about some of these companies now who, you know, to, to, I guess to some listeners, don't really kind of exist anymore, don't really kind of appear on the radar. But, you know, Nokia was the 
the company that was winning the mobile phone industry. And people don't remember, Nokia had its own store around the same time called OV Store. You know, um, there was Sony Ericsson was another company making handsets. And, you know, making stores was not, it was technically um, hard, but it wasn't rocket science. So Apple coming up with its, with an app store wasn't, didn't, wasn't, didn't appear to be changing the industry in the way that we would now look back in. You know, you talk to anyone in the mobile games industry and they would go, the one thing that changed the mobile games industry was the app store. You know, at the time that was not an obvious thing. Um, so absolutely, we, we, we were not aware of it. And, and we had one of our writers was, was, I wouldn't even say he was kind of an Apple fanboy, but he was quite keen on Apple stuff. And he bought a, he bought a, um, a I guess it would have been a, a 3GS, an iPhone 3GS, and when the App Store went live, he kind of started writing about it, but, but it wasn't anything strategically that we kind of asked him to do. He was just kind of did it, because that's what kind of geeky journalists do. They buy hardware, and they when it does something, they write articles about the new thing it does. Um, so it was, it, was, it was kind of a surprise, and, and like all these things, it didn't, it kind of took off, I suppose, um, quite quickly in terms of people being interested in it, but in terms of, you know, there weren't a lot of iPhones out there compared to other devices you know there was not a lot of revenue going through the app store at the time you know that took years um you know a couple of years really to build up and and, and become a meaningful business even compared to this kind of like um what would now be seen as this kind of antiquated java brew ecosystem i mean that was still you could still sell millions of, of units of your mobile phone game at five dollars or five euros a game um at that stage just because the market was so much bigger um, so then, uh, Apple announced the the App Store in March two thousand and eight, mm. uh, and and got EA to to show off uh, a couple of like uh, a mobile version of Spore that they'd started working on. Sega had a um, tilt controlled version of Monkey Ball. Mm. Uh, did you did you guys start to go? Hey, this is this is interesting. Uh, to you know, to see the quality that that people were pushing for, I think when those games started coming out, then there was this um, kind of surprise factor, I suppose. I mean, there was always a thing. I think you'll always find certainly with Apple, and it's not to be necessarily demeaning to them. You know, there are some companies that attract kind of fanboys in that way, which is not necessarily a derogative term. But there's a, you know, there are companies who they will release anything and those people will be first in the queue um, and there's some companies who equally do similarly you know cool technological stuff and they don't have fanboys in the same way but I guess you would say Nintendo and Apple you know are, are two of the quite kind of virulent kind of uh, audience groups um, and when it became clear that the, just the kind of the quality of the games you could make for the iPhone 3DS was clearly you know a stage bigger than what you you know what you could do or a, a stage more advanced than what you could do for java and even brew brew was i guess technically the more advanced um kind of tech tech platform and and suddenly it became this kind of thing which we're kind of still seeing now 10 years on where people would say it's a mobile game but it's console quality you know and obviously consoles yeah. were different 10 years ago um but but you were definitely seeing I guess in terms of the titles of the games being announced, you know, you you were seeing. I, I guess particularly 
Sega doing Monkey Ball. A Monkey Ball would obviously been, you know, a, a big game for Nintendo consoles. And you were seeing something, you know, broadly equivalent in terms of the visual quality. And clearly, you know, early on you had a game that was using something that was natural to the phone device. You were using a tilt controller. I mean, it wasn't technically a great kind of tilt um, hardware. But you were having something that you were doing on a, on a, on console controllers, but you're doing it on your phone. I mean, quite how you saw... The problem was, obviously, if you played the game, it was quite difficult to see what you're doing on the screen because you were tilting the screen to move, to move the monkey ball. Um, but, I mean, that's kind of like a, an, an early adopter problem. Mm-hmm. But again, I kind of go back to the fact that even though this, the kind of quality of this stuff was, was surprisingly good, you know, the install base of the hardware was very small. And so it just, you know, in terms of if, if I was head of mobile at EA, you know, I, I, I might go, this is a we'll spend a bit of money doing this Spore port because it's kind of a cool thing to do and some people like Apple hardware but it, it wasn't something where you were strategically going oh mo- mobile games are going to be this big market that 10 years on now we, we, you know mobile games are give or take 40 billion dollars of revenue and you know bigger than console gaming depending on how you you know add these things up there's always a bit of wiggle factor in there but um, that was not something obvious at the time uh, and with the the higher quality um, came expectations of of higher prices from many people, uh, and th- there was so much discussion um, that I really vaguely remember, uh, and uh, in researching this, have have been reminded of a bit uh, about what the price might be. Uh, when I talked to Brian Greenstone um, uh, a while back, I remember he was saying that. Um, he remembers people settling on Game Boy kind of game pricing as uh, their expectation. What, what do you remember about that? Yeah, so pricing's. I, I guess with pricing for a new product, it's all, people are always looking back to an equivalent kind of similar product to see what they can price against. Um, and in one way, I, th- I think you know, I mean, Game Boy Game Boy pricing was seen as an equivalent kind of product although obviously kind of game boys you know game boy games were on cartridges so it was a very different um kind of physical you know manufacturing process there there was a even if you want to give them away give them away for free there was a cartridge involved so you couldn't and you know for game boy you had to order through nintendo and you had to pay nintendo a certain amount of royalty and you had to order them six months in advance and all this kind of crazy stuff um so there was you know, lower than that, there was the pricing for mobile games on the kind of Java Brew plat- platforms that were around kind of five dollars, five euros for a game. I think the kind of feeling was at the time that if you were spending, you know, over the odds to buy Apple hardware because you were, you know, um, prepared to, to to be an early adopter into the Apple ecosystem, um, then you were probably looking at you know, more than five euros, five dollars. But I think with all these kind of, with all pricing, you know, you, you, there's always this kind of elasticity that people don't want to necessarily price too high because then they're limiting their audience. They want to price too low because then, you know, there's a quality kind of issue as well. So so no one really knew. And, and even for, you know, for many years after kind of the iPhone was growing and becoming, you know, the, the kind of behemoth that we know it is now, 
there was always always this idea that because it had this kind of quality and this kind of Apple kind of um, ethos around it, that Apple should be charging, you know, more. And there was, I remember, you know, back in back in the time we used to write these stories about, oh, there's going to be a a premium app store. So, you know, I, I think at the time it it wasn't laid down in stone, but it was highly recommended that no one um, charge more than $10 a game. But when, you know, after a few years, then suddenly you could start looking at, well, I'm kind of porting, I mean, porting's a, a, a elastic term, but I'm porting this kind of PC game, and the PC game is like $50. So I'm giving you some kind of version of this PC game, so why can't I charge you $25? Um, and so there's always this idea that Apple could was going to launch this kind of premium app store that was going to be in a, a, like a an app, like a version of the app store um, that was for games that were more than ten dollars and and I think definitely um, you know within the Steve Jobs world of Apple there was always this idea that you could um, you, you should be able to you know monetize your the value and the quality that you, you were providing and there was no reason that a, you know an iPhone game couldn't be worth. Fifteen dollars. Mm. So in the early days, um, there was there was definitely kind of a tension. It wasn't a tension on how quickly we can reduce the pricing to a dollar. It was the attention on, well, I'm bringing you Super Monkey Ball, which costs you fifty dollars on the GameCube. You know, wh- why shouldn't I charge you twenty dollars on the iPhone? Um, obviously, that quite quickly, <laughs> as it transpires, that um, that argument became void. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, on that note, um, the standard pricing that, um, developers seem to agree on at the beginning was, um, 10 US dollars or the equivalent in other regions. Um, and their, from what I understand, their sales expectations were, were pretty modest. Uh, like, uh, people... Some people were thinking that they'd sell maybe twenty, thirty thousand lifetime games, even though they're there day one and they're um, high quality. Um, what were the expectations for um, what kind of impact uh, the the early days of the App Store would make? Mm. I, I think the expectations really depended on who you were asking for the expectations, if that makes sense. So. I think yeah. if you look at who was making kind of early games for the iPhone, there was the kind of big companies, so they were like the Segas and the EAs, and those were just like big game companies who could afford to, you know, spend, I don't know, you know, $100,000 or, you know, whatever, giving, you know, on some engineering time that if they weren't spending it on iPhone games, they'd be spending it on some other kind of console or, or GameCube or whatever. So for those guys, it was a, like an interesting experiment. Um, they weren't expecting necessarily to make money off it, um, and they weren't really looking too much at the money. They were just like, "There's a new platform. Let, let's try and do something on it." Um, and then there were the kind of guys who'd been doing mobile mobile games in this kind of Java brew world, and were quite dissatisfied because they weren't in control of it. And the App Store was kind of interesting for them because they were now in control of pricing. There were no publishers. You just you know, as a developer, you published yourself on the App Store. So you could maybe, you know, you were quite probably quite good at making games from a technical point of view. Uh, and now you're going to develop some sort of kind of marketing, publishing services uh, and, and try and 
you know, continue your mobile game making um, kind of situation. And the other ones were, and actually, if you look back, the kind of indie guys who were most prominent when, when the iPhone launched were the guys who would actually be making games for Mac computers. And obviously, Mac, you know, at the time, Macs were, you know, I mean, no one used Macs. I mean, I guess you, I mean, educational people use Macs and maybe, you know, designers use Macs. But Macs were not a great, you know, hardware. But there were people um, who made games for Macs. And that was like a tiny little niche. And they were quite committed to the Apple ethos. Um, so people like kind of Freeverse um, and, and Pangea, I guess, were the two big ones at the time. And they were kind of, in a sense, porting their kind of indie Mac games to the iPhone. And they could do that because they were already develop, developing them just for Mac's, Mac um, software. So they were already using Apple kind of development tools. Hmm. So... And I, get, I think each of those three kind of groups of people had quite different ideas about what success was. For the for the Segas and EAs, they didn't really care because just the market wasn't big enough. It was a, you know, um, you know, sub ten million dollars. Uh, sorry, sub ten million units of of kind of hardware out there. So it just you know it wasn't big enough for those big companies to to see jump in sales. Um, but for the other two, it, it, you know, if you suddenly had a hit. And if you had a hit, it's only a kind of you know five or ten dollar um, kind of price point. Those were quite small companies, and so suddenly, like another you know, hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars of sales from a game was was quite big. And actually, quite quickly, what you saw, I think, was the kind of um, creative momentum for the iPhone kind of dropped away from the big companies, dropped away from the EAs and Segas, and it kind of became the you know, the free versus the Pangeas really in, in the early days who were kind of really driving um, kind of the creative momentum. And they weren't being particularly creative because what they were doing were kind of porting their existing Mac games. Um, but those Mac games, most people hadn't played them because um, they'd just been in this very niche market. Um, and as time went on, you kind of had obviously kind of startups who, you know, two or three years down the line, you suddenly saw this kind of, you know, more kind of VC funded startup who probably had made, you know, games before, probably not mobile games, but had made games, maybe console PC games, and suddenly saw the iPhone as a device that was really gaining traction in terms of kind of consumer usage and, and was a effectively a portable computer with, you know, with, with phone infrastructure as well. And that's where you saw the big change happening when, when you started seeing kind of VCs get, you know, investing, you know, Two, three, five, ten million dollars in a company who'd never made a game ever to make games specifically for the iPhone, and and that, and that was partly to do with consumer kind of interest in the iPhone as a device, and partly because um, people kind of could see you could sell you know a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand units of a game at you know two, three, five dollars. Yeah. Uh, and so when the when the App Store launched and it was uh, bigger than people had expected um, in terms of uh, sales of the of the popular stuff, um, Apple didn't really have a good um, method of curating or um, allowing people to discover um, apps. Uh, and so what did that? mean uh, in the short term and the kind of the medium term for um, how game developers could, could get attention 
um, and keep their sales. Because um, uh, on that note, uh, I know that in those days, there was a massive drop-off in revenue outside of the top 50 or top 100 selling apps. Mm. I mean, I, I think something we do need to point out is that you know Apple have never been a company that has been enthusiastic about games you could kind of argue that that it's got more um, enthusiastic as time has gone on but certainly when steve jobs was around um, steve jobs was not an enthusiast of saying buy an iphone and play all these cool games Um, in fact if you look back when the iphone launched even for a number of years after iphone launched a lot of the kind of iconography and a lot of the um, momentum around buying an iphone wasn't about the games you could play on it and apple has never been particularly um supportive i don't think anyway of, of game developers although that has changed over time um so in that sense you know i think apple was surprised that it introduced this fairly expensive phone and people um loved it i'm sure they were expecting that but when you started looking at the downloads and when you start looking at what people were playing um, on their iPhones then quite quickly it became clear that games were the kind of predominant um, you know kind of category of, of app usage on, on iPhones and I kind of I don't know this is kind of a slight kind of um, kind of view on my part I, I suppose but I, I didn't I don't, I've never really thought that they considered how the app store would work in terms of discovery in a very deep way so obviously you've always had the free charts and the paid charts and now we also have the grossing charts although we're not quite sure how long we will continue to have the grossing charts Um, Hmm. and I kind of get the impression that there was an assumption that those charts would probably be quite dynamic Certainly in terms of the free charts, you know, they are still quite dynamic because a new free app can come out and be quite, uh, you know, kind of trending or trendy and, and you know, free apps might stay at the top of the charts for maybe a week and then they drop off and something new comes on. So the free charts are always quite good to see, you know, what's happening because there's no, there's no cost to the user of downloading a free app apart from finding it and, and pressing, you know, pressing on your, on your screen. The paid apps, I guess the assumption was they would always be a bit more static because um, people have to pay for them. So there's a value, you know, assumption there that people aren't going to spend money on apps unless they are valuable. So there's probably not going to change in the same way. Um, And equally, I think, and this is something that Apple really can't be um, criticized for, they were just surprised about suddenly they released effectively an open platform that you had to pay you know, $99 a year to get access to and have free tools. And then suddenly you had, you know, quite quickly after the, after the app store went live, you had this explosion and suddenly, you know, everyone and literally everyone, people, you know, companies who made games or companies who made, um, I mean, apps weren't really a thing then, but companies who could program, suddenly everyone was releasing any old stuff. I mean, it's kind of hard to think back now. There was certainly in the UK, I don't know how global it was. There was, there was, it was, it was a free app, but basically there was an app 
that was um, used the accelerometer in the phone and it was a pint of beer and you drunk it and it and you drunk the beer obviously you know it's basically you tipped up your phone and the beer came out you know i mean and it was did like you know millions and millions of downloads and all this kind of crazy stuff you know there was the there was the one that i can't remember even remember how much it cost but there was an app that was a certain amount of money and you just bought it and it basically said you were rich because you'd spend a hundred dollars buying an app that said you were rich and there's all these kind of you know bonkers things you know i mean i i you know, i don't think anyone um so this is not like saying apple the people at apple are stupid because clearly they're not it was just you suddenly opened the pandora's box to to um kind of human creativity and greed and the stuff that comes out out of it is is, is absolutely kind of incredible um so i kind of think that the fact that there was a has always been seen in, there's been a problem with visibility um or discoverability as, as the developers would say um that's not necessarily a problem and I've, I've always as time has gone on i've always kind of got a bit angry at developers who assume that you know a store that they are passively using would somehow um you know promote them and the problem with apple i guess compared to google is is google's always been, been about advertising so if you kind of advertise with google then yeah, there's quite clear rules about your bidding for keywords or, or however it works. Um, and you can work out if I spend this money, what money do I get back? And is it worth me continuing to market? Apple, historically, you know, it's had a few goes at trying to do advertising within the App Store. Some of, most of them have been not very successful and some have been maybe a little bit more um, successful. But But it's never really been set up. You know, it, it's always kind of relied somehow on kind of quality of, of of the experience as provided by downloads or, or paid sales to kind of provide that and i kind of think if you know clearly if you, if you have an iphone which obviously billions of people do or at least a billion people do um you know if you go to the app store every day you can find interesting new apps for you to experience and certainly you can find you know every day you could go to it and find a new game to play um the fact that that i've spent a year making a, a game and I've released it, and the, the App Store doesn't make me a millionaire is not the App Store's problem. That's kind of, well, from my view at least, it, that's my problem. So I think that's always been the, the big disconnect, is that developers um, have always moaned about discoverability, and that just meant that their game hadn't been as successful as they wanted it to be, and that meant that somehow they thought Apple should have promoted their game in a way that made them rich. Um, but suddenly mm-hmm. when you had, you know, however many apps going live or certainly you know how many million games you have on the app store live at the moment you know obviously apple can't make all those people millionaires because not enough money in the world Uh, at what point did you notice um developers of the more premium experiences you know things like what pangea or freeverse were doing um ea when they got involved um at what point did you notice that they had started to play around with their price points to mm. try and increase their visibility. So there, I have to say there is a little bit of um, very minor controversy at this point, um, but I remember um, the first game that I noticed that was doing this was um, EA's, or PopCap, PopCap's Peggle. So so PopCap at that point um, wasn't part of EA, but EA published Peggle on the App Store. And Peggle was, I mean, is this kind of lovely kind of um, pinchinko style kind of kind of kind of arcadey game where you kind of fire 
balls around, they all ping around. Yeah, you know, it's a really lovely kind of tactile game. Um, and I think I could be wrong, but I think it was like four dollars, three ninety nine dollars or something when it came out. Um, and then someone at EA Marketing started doing this um, thing where they would they would drop it, drop the price down to ninety nine cents for a limited time, you know, a couple of days. Um, and kind of, you know, through their channels, they say, you know, Peggles, 99 cents for the next three days. And what you'd see clearly is that because it was a high quality game, it had reviewed very well, people would go, well, look, I wouldn't buy Peggle at like, you know, $3.99, but it's 99 cents. You know, what's, what's that? You know, not even a cup of coffee. So you'd see this massive increase in downloads um, and, and it would zoom up, you know, zoom up the page chart because even though the price had dropped by, you know, 75% more people, more than that difference, were, were buying it. Um, and so we started using this term peggling. Um, a few years later, I, I was told off by a marketing guy, actually at Freeverse, who said they they had invented this um, uh, kind of marketing strategy, but for a game that wasn't as um, interesting to use as a term peggling. So anyway, we used this term peggling. Um, and suddenly, you know, I guess you know when a journalist starts writing about something then already probably already by that stage it's quite well understood within the within the industry because journalists aren't always the sharpest and certainly yeah you know, I, I can't say I, I i i kind of created anything there I, I just was probably told about it by someone else um so suddenly you started seeing you know more and more of these companies go um you know our game was, was five dollars but now for a you know two days it, it's it's 99 cents and of course you know, the first time the first few times people use it it works really well because it's new um, and then if everyone starts using it then it doesn't work at all um, because everyone's using it <laughs> so 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 it kind of did work but it started to make um, developers realize that um, you know what, what are fairly standard retailing um, kind of marketing um, techniques could be used on the app store because obviously on the app store developers can set the price for their app so so they start to play with the kind of pricing hmm. I, i'm not sure exactly who was actually first um no. doing my <laughs> research it's, it's it's really tough no one has exact data um but i know from talking to brian greenstone that inside apple there are people who blame him and you know, tangia for <laughs> okay. for doing it because mm. uh, they were they were one of the first, if not the first. No, I'm, I'm, uh, and I'm he, absolutely sure Brian got a millionaire out of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, apparently, there there are people who haven't forgiven him for that. <laughs> well, if he's uh, well, he's he's not even in games anymore, isn't he? He's he's, he's doing um, um, geology or something. Yeah, he's selling minerals like no, exactly, little. Yeah. That those little things that you'd you'd buy at like a National Geographic type store. <laughs> <laughs> those those little rocks that I collected when I was like ten years old. Well, there's a market. market They're shiny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he he told me about how um, it worked incredibly well in the early days to to drop your price way down and then bump it back up a couple of days later. Mm. Uh, and that's how we got a few games in the top ten simultaneously. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it was it was kind of pirate stuff. <laughs> uh, after the after the tactic of um, lowering a price and putting it back up had um, become more widely known, um, 
and hence less effective. Uh, what were you seeing as the pricing trends um, from developers, in, um, either with games that were already out or games that are just coming out? Yeah, it actually, it actually kind of flipped quite quickly from this kind of idea of kind of kind of peggling to um, you start to see these services. So I guess the best known one of them became um, free app a day. Um, but basically what you were seeing was this kind of dynamic kind of pricing situation. And at one point, the kind of pegging stuff still happened that, you know, a, a new game would come out and it would be kind of um, told to the press, you know, that the long-term price is going to be like $499. Um, but for the first two weeks, it'll be like one ninety nine or two or you know ninety nine cents or whatever it'll be, um, and that definitely, you know, that kind of worked in developers' favour that they they were driving, um, you know, launch week or, or you know launch period sales. Then of course the problem was you had this massive drop off where you know okay they put the price up they may have doubled the price but they were destroy you know destroying ninety percent of the sales, um, and of course what would happen because people were starting to think about the app store just to like another, you know, retail pricing thing is you start to see, you know, sales at various points. So you might have independence day sales or, you know, black Friday sales in, in the States or, you know, whatever the, whatever the national kind of, um, you know, holiday season was, you'd have, you know, kind of day, day long sales on those days. So, so basically, you know, anything that came over any app or game that was priced, more than really, you know, five dollars or even five, four dollars, people will go. Well, I missed the launch week, so I'll just wait until it goes down to its its sale price. And obviously, people are very good at going. I don't really care about that. You know, there's maybe one game you really care about, and you don't care what the price is. You buy it, and there's like another nine games that you're quite interested in, but you'll wait until they get to a certain price. Um, and all that kind of stuff filtered through actually quite quickly. Um, so actually, you had you had this. Yeah, kind of two ideas that you had this very quick idea that um, the minimum price on the app store was 99 cents. So you couldn't really go any lower than 99 cents. So that was clearly where the market was going to end up at. Um, individual developers didn't want to get down to 99 cents because then kind of their, their business became um, unprofitable. But as over time, as, as more of them did it, then that's kind of where they ended up. So you kind of had this kind of slightly bizarre thing. So you had these kind of free up a day things where where they were, um, as the name suggests, they were paid apps. Um, and what happened was they were, they were a little bit different. So the, the retailing happened differently, that they would be games that would come out and they would go, they'd actually, in, they would have a, quite a high launch price. So they might go with $3.99 for the launch week. But then we're going to go have a, a free, have this free app a day service. And this was one of you know several similar services that you could sign up to via email or it had its own app. And basically every day you would have one or, or two apps or games that basically were paid, but for that day had gone free. So it was worth signing up for these services because you get these paid apps for free. Um, and then the next day, those apps would then increase their price back to where it had been. But the hope was they would get so much kind of social... Um, kind of media muscle when people going this this game's great or this app's great that that enough people would then buy them at the kind of high uh, the actual pricing that it would work out and for a while and actually for you know a fairly long while you know a year or so those kind of what 
what were marketing services did very well. Um, but then, of course, um, they kind of if they're quite expensive to use because developers would effectively they, they they might pay you know a certain amount of money up front, but effectively they were paying like a rev share. So they they would have to give these services kind of access to their analytics to prove over the say a two week period how much they how much the marketing service had generated for them, and then the the service would get you know a cut of that as well. And obviously with all these things, if it did work and it did work in in the short term, more people started to use it. So they then they started to kind of bloat their services and have more than one free Apple game a day. So then the kind of the, the effectiveness of that kind of service started to die off and there were there were more than you know once someone had invented it it wasn't you know rocket science to just you know kind of copy it so there were various different companies doing these various different services um and you know in the end the, the kind of ending was could you could you make a successful game mobile game for 99 cents because that's kind of where you ended up no matter what kind of marketing services you use you know, could you be successful at 99 cents? Um, and that was really where I think a lot of the companies, you know, for all three of those original starting type of companies, like the, the EAs and the Segas, the proper game companies, found it hard to, you know, to make a profitable business at 99 cents. Um, the kind of the, the Pangeas and the Freedverses, they were quite small companies, but they weren't, they weren't making kind of proper, you know, innovative games. So they found a problem with it. And so, the kind of some of the indie startups could still manage to do that because they had very low costs, but basically no one, no one was happy with the app store running at effectively selling games for 99 cents. Apart from consumers, so consumers loved it clearly, and still at that stage, you know, the iPhone as a as a, as a hardware was still selling more and more and more, and, and obviously um, when the iPad came in, that was more expensive, so you could. People were doing iPhone. The iPhone version will be 99 cents, and the iPad version will be, you know, 199 or 299 because that was that was a more expensive piece piece of hardware. So you were assuming those consumers could spend more money on a, a bigger kind of graphical experience. But um, you kind of quite quickly hit this kind of rock bottom, uh, and that was kind of in terms of paid games, that was where you ended up. Uh, and to to close that out, um, this also affected game design right and we had a a change in the kinds of games that uh were succeeding and that um, people were trying to make mm, yeah i i'm not entirely sure how much pricing had to do with that i i kind of think as 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 kind of smartphone gaming you know and as smartphone gaming has gone on historically then you know i think when something starts then lots of people throw lots of different kind of creative ideas at it and see see what works um and so you know at one point you, I, I think at one point you did have this kind of create this kind of golden creative era where you had kind of you know games like uh flight control you know a lot of line drawing games um which we don't really see anymore um and you had people, obviously, you know, people always try first-person shooters. Doesn't really work well on touchscreen, but doesn't mean people don't try it. You know, I mean, racing games again aren't particularly great, but you've kind of seen people try, you know, gyro-controlled um, racing games. And you kind of saw this kind of, certain, I guess, a bit of a later period. You saw these kind of endless runners, the, the kind of um, temple runs, which you know haven't been a big genre in other hardware, but on a mobile phone, very quick to do. 
um, just kind of swipey swipey touchscreen type stuff. Um, so I think o- over time, um, I've always kind of thought for mobile games, this kind of creative arc has been more important than the pricing. You you have the creative ideas and then, then you fit the business model kind of around them to a degree. Um, but I kind of think, you know, for me, the big change happened when, when you were making paid games and you were effectively effectively limited to 99 cents then that did constrain i guess how much content you were putting in your games to begin with um i guess when when we when this you know this kind of free to play thing happened and that i guess that was you know that was i don't know how much of it was a reaction to 99 cents as a price point and developers going to apple we can't make any money um I, as i said before I, I don't think apple really uh, really has ever cared about games and doesn't really care what game developers think. So when free, when kind of micro, microtransactions came in, um, that was something that was a different dynamic for Apple to kind of ha- have that as as a as a, um, as a kind of retailing model, um, and that then reignited kind of game designers' ideas about how how would you I make a game that I am giving away for free, but you can buy things in the game, um, and, and that was where you know, I think the biggest change happened. So lots of people in the industry, if you say to them, what was the, what was the biggest, most significant event in the history of mobile games, they would say the um, launch of the App Store. And I wouldn't um, ever underestimate the importance of the App Store. But for me, the most important thing that ever happened was the ability to do uh, microtransactions in games. So that came in mm-hmm. with, with iOS 3. And at the time, it was a total flop. So if you talk to anyone at the time, it was an absolute disaster. There was the consumers weren't ready for it, didn't understand it. The game designers, developers didn't make games that worked well with it. Um, but looking back, you know, the, the start of free-to-play games was was the ignition point for the mobile games industry. Okay, so so the um, the rock bottom pricing and the the rise of free-to-play were kind of on separate trajectories then. Well, yeah, I mean, that's my supposition. So you'd have to, um, you know, track down and talk to people in, in Apple and um, iOS development and App Store um, kind of retailing at the time. I, I, I think, you know, in terms of kind of the chronological history, it kind of they kind of work about the same time. But I'm not, I, I, I'm not really sure um, getting down to 99 cents was something that, you know, Apple cared about because at, you know, at that point, you know, iPhone sales were going through the roof. You know, so why would Apple care what's going on with with the retailing of games, of mobile games on the App Store? Um, you know, games at that point, you know, still might be the the biggest part of the App Store, but the fact that kind of game developers are a little bit unhappy about where retailing is going, I don't think that was the reason Apple, um, in you know brought in this free-to-play thing I, I kind of think you know Apple have always been thinking much more mass market um, so I think Apple were thinking much more about kind of apps and you know my expertise is certainly not in non-gaming apps but um, you know th- there was a point at which you know if you would you spend 99 cents on a weather app probably most people in their lives care about the weather but not enough to spend money on it if a weather app was free and you could pay for extra services or pay to remove advertising or you know that kind of thing then that's a much more um, interesting um, situation so I imagine um, you know 
in-app purchases and microtransactions came, you know, Apple introduced those because it was much more important for its, you know, non-gaming app ecosystem. And obviously, you know, we've had lots of debates about things like subscription services and, and you know, the, the New York Times or, or, or these kind of, you know, newspapers um, on, you know, having apps, how those people kind of monetize, that's clearly another debate. Um, but I kind of think Apple wanted to bring in a, a more um, nuanced retailing um, situation for, you know, apps and games, and 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 the fact that games became even bigger <laughs> than they had been when it was a, a paid scenario was was just a a you know unforeseen consequence really. And the other thing to point out as well is, often we think you know Apple were the Apple are these kind of brilliant innovators, um, and you know when it comes to microtransactions, you know. The, the Japanese mobile market has had microtransactions for 20 years. You know, I remember talking to to um, some of the guys in from the Korean publisher um, uh, Gameville, who do a lot of kind of quite heavy RPGs, and remember talking to them when when iOS 3 came out and microtransactions were introduced, and they said, "Well, we've been releasing, um, you know, the games we release in Korea on our mobile phone networks. There, they've had in-app purchases for years." And to release the iOS version, we've been stripping out the in-app purchases to release them on iOS up to this point. So there were other kind of um, kind of mobile ecosystems that were much more advanced than um, than the App Store at that point. So to, to a degree, the App Store was kind of catching up where where more advanced markets were already, you know, finding success. Um, so now I guess um, to to skip over a lot of the the um, evolution of free-to-play models because um, it's not really all that relevant to Race to the Bottom. Uh, I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on um, where iOS gaming is going. You know, what's going to happen over the next couple of years? What are the likely ramifications of um, the recent App Store change announcements for yeah. um, the next version of iOS? Mm, it's always difficult to speculate into, into the future, isn't it? Um, and, and particularly difficult to speculate on this point when we don't really know exactly what Apple's doing. I mean, the supposition is that the um, top-grossing charts will be removed, at least for consumers. I think that there is a kind of a underlying idea in the industry that it would be um, bad to lose that kind of information because for people in the industry, it's useful to know what games are top-grossing. Because that's that's different to you know, obviously different to the top paid games and different to the top free games. So the idea is, you know, a lot of the top grossing games have not actually had that many downloads. Um, so they are monetizing a fairly small user base um, fairly extensively, and that's interesting for people in, in the industry to then go and play those games and, and try and see how they're monetizing their their user base. Um, as I say, I don't think Apple has, has ever done anything in particular to help um, game developers specifically, considering that games are by far and away the biggest source of revenue for the App Store and the biggest kind of time use for the App Store. Um, I guess in terms of the future, I kind of think that, um, not just for the App Store, but for mobile games in general, um, the kind of free-to-play um, era is played out to a degree so I kind of you know it's often people in the industry say mobile games it's very young it's very young we've only been going 10 years and I would go it's not very young it's been going 10 years um, you know 10 years is, is not is not young and we can kind of clearly see you know the winners of 
of the App Store era, you know, there's this like Supercell, clearly a winner yeah. of the App Store you know, era. You can't really argue about that. You know, was hadn't made any games, success hadn't even launched. Well, it launched a Facebook game um, unsuccessfully, and then has launched some very successful mobile games, clearly worth ten billion dollars. You know, there's equally you know MZ, um, you know, a, a machine zone as it was as it was known has has two now three very successful free play mobile games um probably also worth about 10 billion dollars you know these these are these are companies who um you know have only really operated in the mobile era and have become you know enormous companies um and the, you know the type of games they make i mean supercell are very creative but they're very they're still very focused on free to play dynamics and mechanics mz a bit more um I guess focused on the monetization uh, and those are games that, that if you played them you would find it hard to find out what the gameplay is about um but they are very successful and i kind of think you know um for all the creativity in mobile games it's quite clear what the kind of top line who the top line winners are um and now we know in free-to-play mobile games you can do match three games they work really well you can do kind of menu based um kind of alliance heavy kind of structured games like MZ. Um, I guess Supercell gets a little bit different, but it's making very um, polished, very quick games that are very obvious that, you know, in what you're doing. I mean, Supercell's genius is it makes very complex genres, mashes them up, and then makes them very clear to the user what you're going to do. Um, and you can just play them, you know, for a couple of minutes. You know, mobile games are not good for you know, long session, heavy duty uh, shooters or, or racing games or, you know, it's not to say that some shooters and some racing games haven't been broadly successful on mobile, but those are not sitting at the, you know, at the top grossing, the, you know, at the top of the top grossing charts. I guess in terms of if you're looking to, to how, how is um, mobile, how mobile games going to change, then I guess you are probably looking at kind of future technologies that you know, probably are quite a bit of a way off. So the kind of VR, AR stuff, I guess, to a degree you have with Pokemon Go. I mean, you could argue um, how much of that is an AR game and how much of that is a location-based game. Um, I, um, my view is that's much more a location-based game attached to a brilliant, brilliant uh, brand. Um, but those kind of successes are kind of happening. I and mean, certainly, certainly Pokemon Go happened kind of outside the App Store. So the visibility of the App Store didn't really matter, you know, Pokemon Go was it was a you know a global news phenomenon for you know a couple of months. <laughs> people were writing funny articles about people walking into lakes or, or getting arrested for or you know whatever they were doing playing Pokemon Go. Um, and I think to a degree we've kind of lost that kind of early enthusiasm with mobile games that you were playing a game on a mobile device that was had connections to all your friends um, and you could walk around with it. And, and certainly Pokemon Go is a game that's important that you walk around with it and you uh, you know talk to your friends and actually meet up with them physically so so um how quite how many pokemon goes there are available in terms of having those that kind of power that power of the license um it, it, i would think it's hard, hard to say but i don't i don't really see any big excitement in terms of like there's a new genre of mobile games that suddenly appears that is just based on someone sitting um, in their living room playing a new type of game. I mean, I kind of think those have all been pretty much mined out and you kind of know um, if you want to be successful, you, you know, you, you try and 
do a better match three game than King, or you try and do a better kind of you know management game than MZ, or you somehow you try and out innovate um, Supercell. It's interesting how uh, in such a short time developers managed to uh, iterate on ideas and 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 explore um, the, all the different potential genres. Um, when in the when the broader games industry, that arguably happened over a, a slightly longer period of mm. time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think that one thing you have to realize with mobile because it had such low bar- barriers to entry that you, know, you suddenly had this explosion in terms of you know there were probably at certain points I don't know you know hundreds of thousands of mobile game developers all making games, you know most of which were you know not very good and most of which were abject commercial failures so those companies went off and started doing something else so so there was there has been if you if you the period of time might not seem very long but the amount of companies that have been throwing stuff at the wall to see if it sticks you know has been a lot um Mm. and kind of if you look at those kind of the companies that have succeeded you know they've gone through a few failures so say you know supercell its big game was was a facebook kind of hardcore squad based shooter that just was launched at the end of kind of Facebook gaming's kind of rise, didn't do anything, and they were like, what can we do next? Um, and got into mobile games, and they were obviously very successful. You know, MZ started out as, as I mean, very early on, but starting out as a mobile dating app, so it really understood kind of how, how the social mechanic on mobile worked. It didn't make a successful dating app, but obviously it's made successful mobile games. Um, and King, you know, King kind of understood a kind of... Uh, middle-aged female market that was what it was a pc game it was a web game hub effectively you know for many years before it got it got into mobile games actually quite late um, but it understood what its audience wanted and so i kind of if you look back on it in, in that way you know the people who did well kind of ended up you know having good ideas about what their audience wanted bef- and then doing that on mobile rather than going what makes a great mobile game and can i find an audience i, I mean i think both routes um, are equally valid, but um, now, given that everyone has a has a smartphone, um, you you know you don't have to worry that your audience doesn't have access to your game if you make a mobile game, um, which, which earlier on in the in the in the kind of iPhone kind of cycle, I guess we could say you know that, that there was a bit more of an issue about oh the iPhone's only sold 100 million units, so who has it? Well, it's probably going to be early adopters, you know, kind of college kids, blah, 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 what games do they want? So at that point in the earlier era, we kind of saw, I guess, a bit more of a predominance of the, what we might see as um, traditional game genres, so kind of shooting, racing, kind of sports, console crossover, whereas we've ended up somewhere a little bit different. All right, cool. Um, that's probably a good place to to round it out. Um I really appreciate you taking like uh, about an hour out of your night. No um, problem, man. <laughs> I, I like talking about things. <laughs> I hope it's useful for you. Yeah, I, I think it will be. I hope you enjoyed listening to the interview. If you'd like to hear more of these extended interviews, please sign up as a Patreon backer at lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. I'll be back soon with another documentary. Thanks for listening. See ya.